Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. I just thought that we'd like to make a little bit of a course change here and get at the issue of the trial, the murder trial, surrounding the death of Colton Bushy. Now, people gathered across this country to speak out against what they called an unfair trial surrounding the death of Mr. Bushy. A Saskatchewan jury found Gerald Stanley not guilty of second-degree murder and the death of the 22-year-old Colton Bushy. That was on Friday. And it sparked debate across the country where, as Global News reports, many are calling the trial an example of racism that is still prevalent in Canada. Bushy of the Red Pheasant First Nation was shot dead August 2016, while sitting in an SUV that was driven onto Stanley's farm near Bigger, Saskatchewan. Stanley was found not guilty after 13 hours of jury deliberations. It was an all-white jury, and that has caused people to talk about racism. The Justice Minister for Canada and the Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould, tweeted yesterday, after uh, Prime Minister Trudeau tweeted, just spoke with Justice Minister, I can't imagine the grief and sorrow the Bushy family's feeling tonight, sending love to them from the United States. That was Justin Trudeau. And then the Justice Minister tweets, Thank you, Mr. Trudeau. My thoughts are with the family of Colton Bushy tonight. I truly feel your pain, and I hear all of your voices. As a country, we can and must do better. I'm committed to working every day to ensure justice for all Canadians. So there's some issues and some questions here about whether or not the federal justice minister and attorney general should be tweeting in this way. Because what it sounds like is criticism of an individual case, an individual trial, and a jury. That's what it sounds like to me. And I'm not talking about the case itself. I'm talking about the sounds-like interference by the justice minister. David Budd is one of this country's top criminal lawyers. He's argued cases before the Supreme Court of Canada. He's based in Toronto, and uh, he frequently joins us on the air. But I think this is the first time we've talked to David when he's been on the top of a ski hill. That's right, Roy. Uh, great to be with you, and I hope uh, your listeners can hear me. We can hear you fine, David, and thank you so much for uh, interrupting your afternoon of skiing. What do you make of the Justice Minister and the statement that she tweeted? Well, you know, there are some uh, serious structural issues uh, to be looked at. Um, and, you know, I'm not criticizing anybody in the Colton uh, Bushy trial. Everybody, Crown prosecutors, defense and judge, all did their jobs in accordance with the rules as they exist. We can always, though, after an event like this that is greeted with widespread uh, disappointment, ask ourselves, are there things that can be done to improve the delivery of justice so that more people have confidence in the outcomes? And there are lots of people who do have confidence in this outcome, but can we expand that pool to include more and more people? And I think that's really the important issue that we need to look at going forward. Was the Justice Minister wrong? Does she compromise uh, this particular case in any way? And is there now some precedent set that could be negative, have a negative impact on the delivery of, of justice in this country, according to the rules we always live by. 
no, I don't think that that uh, poses real difficulty. First of all, there's no interference while the case was ongoing. Everybody was silent, including the Justice Minister and the Prime Minister. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, if there is an appeal, uh, the appeal courts are resolutely independent, and a couple of tweets uh, are not going to influence any judge uh, in the slightest. And uh, again, the bigger question, because this is where government and particularly elected uh, folks like the Attorney General and the Prime Minister play a role, we need to be asking ourselves, how can we improve structurally the delivery of justice services? And there's a real question about the adequacy of jury pools in communities like this and the importance of a representative jury, not a jury that leans one way or another in appearance. And I'm not suggesting this jury was biased because we don't know we weren't in the room. But the appearance is problematic, and is there anything we can do to address that appearance? Because appearances, every lawyer will tell you that justice must not only be done, but be seen to be done. In other words, appearances matter, they matter deeply. So even if this jury got the right answer, if it doesn't look like it was fair, then to a very large extent it was not fair, and that's what we have to be concerned about. So we're talking about it being an all-white jury. Yes. Yes, and, and uh, you know, the, the perception is that that was unfair. Uh, is that perception accurate? Did the jury follow the evidence? Well, you know, Roy, you and I have spoken about this before. We don't know what goes on inside jury rooms, so we'll never know. But it's that perception. You know, if we flip it, and uh, let's say Mr. Stanley was convicted by all First Nations jury, would the perception of many people be, and reasonably so, that it was unfair? Sure. Uh, so, you know what, in a diverse country, uh, our justice processes should ideally reflect the diversity of that country. And the benefit of that, Roy, is that when a diverse group of people reaches a unanimous decision, nobody has grounds to complain about the appearances. And that's the great thing about a diverse jury, because it brings social peace by solving a controversial case and allowing us all to move on. I remember about 20 years ago speaking with the then Attorney General for the state of Washington, and he said essentially what you've just said, David, and he said if the perception is that you don't have a justice system, if that's the public perception, there was a lot of talk about whether we actually had a justice system or whether it was justice or even a system at that time. He said if the perception is that you don't have a justice system, then you don't. That's right. The, the perceptions matter a lot because if people uh, perceive that it's unfair, they lose faith in it, and the next step is people start taking matters into their own hands, and that is the path down to anarchy. So we really need people to buy into a system. And incidentally, the people we need to buy into it the most are the people who are going to be disappointed by the outcomes. It's real easy to win a case and walk away and say, oh, this is great, I can go on with my life. But the people we need to be concerned about garnering their trust are the people who are adversely affected by jury outcomes. They're the most important constituency in terms of keeping uh, the reputation of the justice system high. David, thank you very much for the time. We'll let you get the goggles back down over your eyes and go and show them how to get down that hill. Well, my, my pleasure, Roy. Happy to chat anytime. All the best. David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto on the issue of the federal justice minister and attorney general tweeting about the case of Colton Bushy's murder trial. It's not his murder trial, but the uh, the trial that um, came up with a uh, not guilty verdict in a second-degree murder case 
for uh, the accused. Now, I'm just looking for the tweet from Jody Wilson-Raybould. Again, thank you at PM, Justice Trudeau. My thoughts are with the family of Colton Bushy tonight. I truly feel your pain, and I hear all your voices. As a country, we can and must do better. I'm committed to working every day to ensure justice for all Canadians. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Scott Newark is a former Alberta Crown Prosecutor. He's also the former executive director of the Canadian Police Association. Scott, uh, this particular statement or tweet by the Justice Minister, is there any concern about that? Oh, absolutely. I, In fact, when I saw it, I uh, sent out an email to, to friends of mine. This was, uh, I think, a, a complete uh, error on the part of the Justice Minister. It undermines the public confidence in the justice system by suggesting inherently that the uh, jury was somehow racist. Um, I, I, and I very much uh, echo the comments that you referred to earlier about the uh, Attorney General, I think it was from Washington State. That's right that by definition our justice system uh, relies on public confidence and these kinds of politicized statements by the minister and the prime minister are just grossly inappropriate. That doesn't mean that there isn't a legitimate issue to look at in terms of individual cases and or jurisdictions about the use of jury challenges, but you don't do it immediately following uh, a, a jury verdict that, you know, she wasn't in the courtroom, she doesn't know what the evidence was, she doesn't know how uh, the individual witnesses presented themselves, and to imply, as she obviously is, that the jury was racist, I think is uh, disgraceful. Do you think that uh, this particular tweet, and the Prime Minister got into it as well, I don't think there was anything significantly wrong with what he tweeted, but uh, do you think that this could have a chilling effect, not only on future juries, but also on prosecutors, judges? Um. You can, you can almost, uh, it does make you wonder, doesn't it, that as to whether or not, for example, uh, people in the future will decide, I don't think I really want to be on a jury, okay, and so that uh, they'll uh, then uh, try to find reasons to have themselves exempted from being selected as a juror. That's already an issue uh, in, uh, in Canada, at least it was in my day. Um, and, again, it goes back to the notion of public confidence. Um, and you don't want to have is sort of a politically correct uh, parrot on your shoulder watching over things. People in these positions, and I'm speaking specifically of uh, the the prosecutor, because that's the individual who is obviously coming under the criticism in the jury selection process. They have a public obligation in the duties that they perform. Uh, And uh, the same is true, frankly, of uh, defense counsel as well, even though they represent the, and I think it was in Dave's, uh, David Butt's uh, column, he made that point quite well, uh, that you know they have an obligation to their client, but if they're using what is given to them for an improper purpose, like to exclude jurors based on race, then that is something that legitimately uh, requires being addressed. But for the Justice Minister of Canada to come out within, I, I, I believe, you know, hours of the verdict, and suggesting, obviously, that the uh, the jury was racist, I think, is inappropriate. I just want to take one call. Can you stay with me? Sure. All right. Yeah. John is in uh, Saskatoon. The case did happen in uh, in Saskatchewan. John, what's your thinking? Well, uh, my thinking, Roy, is um, we've had an incident in another town farther up north where three young Native uh, people killed a restaurant owner 
in cold blood that robbed him, 70-year-old man, and nothing's been made of this. I've heard nothing. I've heard the guy pled guilty, and that was the end of it, went under the carpet. Why such a big thing about this instant when there was nothing about the other instant? Scott, any thoughts on that? You were a prosecutor. Well, I, I think, sir, uh, did, you, did you say, though, that the guy that was accused actually pled guilty? Yes, they pled guilty. Okay, that's the difference. This is a case about where somebody had pled not guilty, and in effect, it's not the crime that's being examined, it's the process that determined innocence or guilt. So I think that's the reason why it's getting the attention that the uh, case you mentioned didn't. Is it there... It doesn't diminish the circumstances of what you're talking about, sir, but I think that's probably the reason why there's a difference. Yeah, Scott, is there, a, is there an issue of racism in our justice system? Is... is does that have to be looked at? Does it have to be addressed? Or is the system you know, really uh, blind? I, I actually think this case, if it does turn out to be correct, as it appears to have been alleged in some of the stories, that the guy's lawyers use their, uh, uh, it's called peremptory challenges, where uh, the lawyer, you can just, you can challenge somebody for being on the jury uh, without any justification or any criteria. If that actually turns out to be the case, then I think that is uh, a legitimate issue to be looked at. But to the larger question about racism in the, in the justice system, I remember having to do a, a comment about this, because where I prosecuted was on the edge of the uh, four richest Indian reserves in the, uh, the country. Um, and uh, it was proof that money was not the, uh, the solution, because it was like the most violent place around. Um, but, you know, people said, well, the system was inherently racist because there was a disproportionately high number of aboriginals in the justice system or incarcerated. And I remember the time saying, well, actually, the reason there's a disproportionately high number of aboriginals in the justice system or incarcerated is because there's a disproportionately high number of aboriginals committing crimes. Okay? That's a legitimate issue, but it's a political issue, not a criminal justice issue. So I think we need to get some um, larger syst- uh, systemic uh, uh, problems that go beyond the justice system straight, and people like uh, Justin Trudy and uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould should maybe start looking in the mirror for some answers, too. Well, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's so much talked about uh, as far as our justice system is concerned, and you and I have been talking about it for 25-plus years, and uh, the issue of race has always been sort of there. In some cases, it's been more strongly a, a factor. In others, it's just sort of been in the background, but it's, but it's never been totally absent. No, no, of, of course not. And, and it was also French, help. English, and English French. Yeah, and you can't help but look at you know, the performance of our justice system over decades and decades yeah. and decades, if its object now is, you know, to reintegrate people and to rehabilitate them, it's obviously got some defects when it comes in terms of Aboriginal offenders, doesn't it? Because yeah. the performance result, measured by performance no, results, not by genetics. I'll never forget what the uh, Correctional Service Canada person said. You're all non-convicted, what was it, non-convicted offenders... In, in the, the community. community, yeah. Yes. Mr. Newark, thank you very much for coming on at very short notice. <laughs> All right, Roy. Always good talking to you. Bye-bye. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney and a former Executive Officer of the Canadian Police Association on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. So. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. February the uh, 6th was the International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation. And Calgary Conservative Member of Parliament, Michelle Rempel, the Shadow Minister for Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship, 
issued a statement in which she called on the federal government to return FGM condemnation to the Canadian Citizenship Guide. And uh, we had Ms. Rempel scheduled. Is she there? Do we have her on the phone? Somebody talk to me? Um, I had, uh, I sent uh, Michelle an email this morning and everything was fine. So it was scheduled for right now to speak with her about the uh, issue of FGM being on the Canadian Citizenship Guide. Uh, female genital mutilation is a criminal act upon conviction in Canada. Um, talk to me, please. She's speaking out of the red right now. Okay. So it looks as though we may not be getting Michelle Rimple. She's speaking at an event, we're told. Anyhow, uh, it is a criminal act upon conviction, and uh, I would agree with Ms. Rimple and some 21,000, I believe it is, Canadians who signed an electronic petition and um, supported putting FGM back into the Citizenship Guide. So we hopefully will have an opportunity to speak to her about that going forward. Okay, so this is uh, this is how live radio works, folks. So now I understand that we have uh, we have Miss Rempel on the phone. So Michelle, hi, hi, thank you, thank you for taking the time. Um, Sorry about that, being late. No, it's all, well, I was going to say it's all right, but it isn't. I mean, I'd be lying. I'd be lying if I said it's all. Right. <laughs> this is a, such a serious issue, and so sixth of February was International Day of zero tolerance for female genital mutilation. You brought that up in Parliament. Was it on anybody else's agenda? Well, we it wasn't. Um, we found out last summer that the Liberals were going to remove references to the practice in Canada's Citizenship Guide. And that was really alarming because uh, education is one of the best ways to combat this practice. So we spent several months holding the government to account on that particular issue. And then on February the 6th, after they capitulated on that, we want them to do more. So, uh, you know, this hasn't been something that has been on the government's agenda, but it's something we're going to continue to push for, given the amount of people, women and girls, that are affected by it around the world. You know, this is probably the most fundamental question, and yet I don't know whether I, in fact, should be asking it, but there are emails that I receive, and I just received one now, a minute ago, from somebody saying, well, could you please define what female genital mutilation is? Sure. So it's a practice by which um, there's four different types of it, but a woman's external genitalia are fully removed or cut. Uh, most often that involves her clitoris being cut off. And it's um, practiced um, under you know very false pretenses that this somehow will, uh, you know, it, it's for the health of a woman, but really what it is is to remove a woman's sexual agency. And uh, we know that women who undergo this su suffer a lifetime of health problems, including difficult childbirth, um, you know, obviously severe pain during intercourse, and uh, also the psychological trauma that's associated with it, um, infections, many other things. And I think what might surprise a lot of people is that there's over 200 million women and girls around the world who are cur currently living with the effects of that practice. Um, you know, I, I've gotten some, I, every once in a while I get someone saying to me, well, it's illegal in Canada, what's the big deal? The reality is, is that it happens in silence. 
in silence. It's often, well, it, it isn't reported because of the taboo that's attached to it. And we know that people who practice this, like uh, practitioners of FGM, are coming to Canada. And we know that girls are being taken abroad to have this performed on them. And that's where we're, I've been calling on the government to act. Um, this is something that's very serious. It being illegal is important, but it's not enough. And uh, we need to do more to stop this practice uh, abroad, but certainly here in Canada. So these practitioners are coming to this country specifically to conduct female genital mutilation, and, and then they, they, they leave and go back to where they came from. That's correct. So there were reports um, from the Canadian Border Services Agency that served over the summer as well that said that uh, they were trying to put their agents on alert for practitioners that were coming into the country with tools to perform this. Um, we currently don't have a strategy in Canada to prevent people from entering the country who practice this. And we also don't have a strategy to prevent girls from being taken abroad to have it practiced on them. So those are two things that I think the government needs to immediately act upon. Um, to date, the only thing that I've seen out of the federal government is sort of a, you know, like they seem to think it's a practice that just happens abroad, and that's our only role as Canadians is to say, okay, well, we're going to combat this overseas. But um, we also need to have a plan in, in place here in Canada uh, because this is affecting Canadian women and girls, and uh, we need to, to do more. So when you say, when you ask that it be or, or demand that it be returned to the Citizenship Guide, and you have the electronic petition, was it some 21,000 people who signed it? It was over 25,000 people. Over 25,000. So you present that in Parliament. What are you, uh, what's the counter-argument that you hear, that it's somehow um, uh, non-inclusive or racist or, or bigoted? Well, that's, that's the interesting thing. They couldn't present a counter-argument. I mean, there's this sort of, there's this 10-minute clip that's gone viral of me when I had the immigration minister in front of us at committee questioning him for nearly 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Why would you remove this? Why? I remember that. And, you know, he couldn't give an answer. And um, to me, that's, it's ignorance defined. Um, this is a practice that, as I've said, and I'll just reiterate it again, only is eliminated when women know their rights and myths around it being something that's ne necessary or healthy or, or positive for a woman are dispelled. And the citizenship guide is a piece of information that everyone entering the country seeking citizenship gets. So to have it in there is such a vital tool to combat this practice that I cannot understand why I had to spend four, four months of my time on taxpayer salaries asking the government to, to, to do something that is a no-brainer, common-sense measure in this regard. So when you highly frustrating and, uh, frankly, embarrassing for the government. When you... Uh confront the citizenship minister and the immigration minister with the position that you really need to put this back in the citizenship guide, and here's why, and you understand this as well as I do, what do they say in reply? Well, that's the problem. It's a lot of nothing. Um, I don't know why they took this out. I mean, I'm sure your callers will speculate on that, but that's really a question for them that they have not been able to adequately answer. And you know, to me, that it's just, again, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but it's shameful on their part. And you know what? It sets us having progress moving forward to stop this practice. It pulled that back, right? Um, 
you know, for them to not be able to explain why they were doing that, to me, it's, you know, what kind of a message is that sending? Mm-hmm. So, no, I mean, they had a, they must have had a re- they must have had a reason to take it out of the guide. So tell tell you what the tell all of us what the reason was. Well, and you know, again, that's a question for the government. No, I understand. I asked probably a million times, uh, and they never adequately answered. I I am glad to see that Canadians rallied on this issue. You know, 25,000 signatures on a petition is remarkable. It is. And, you know, for anybody who thinks, oh, these petitions, I sign them all the time, they don't work, uh, we, we got the government to capitulate on this. So now we need to take that momentum and say, okay, well, what's your plan to stop this from happening in Canada? And what's your plan to protect Canadian girls from being taken abroad? And uh, that's the next uh, front on this particular fight. 25,000 votes is enough to swing 13 or 14 ridings in an election, so government should keep that in mind. Michelle, just stay at it, and, uh, and you've got a lot of support across the country. Well, and thank, you for, thank you for raising awareness of this issue, Roy. You know, I, I, it's not a particularly pleasant one to talk about, but it's important that we, uh, we raise awareness of it and continue to fight it. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Michelle Rempel, Conservative Member of Parliament for Nose Hill in Calgary. And the federal government should, first of all, they need to put it back into the issue of FGM, back into the Citizenship Guide, and they should provide Canadians with a understandable reason why they took it out. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. And uh, on Friday... I posted uh, this, waterboarding for seconds is illegal, chronic pain torture is approved. And one sentence in there is, while waterboarding for mere seconds in the stated interest of obtaining life-saving information from suspected terrorists is considered so cruel it's been defined as torture and banned, denying constantly suffering people medication, which has allowed them to live a relatively stable life, is approved. Not only is it approved, doctors who provide the chronic pain patients with the help they require to make life livable are pursued. And the word is terrified. We've used it on this program before. Rachel joins me. She is uh, in Alberta, and she writes, I have two children, and I'm unable to care for them without pain control. They, the college, don't care. Rachel, hi, and who is this college? The College of... Hi, how are you? And it's the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. So before we bring them back into the conversation, tell me what your condition is that causes the pain. Well, I, I have comorbidities. So I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome that has passed um, in from the dormant phase where you just have um, hyperflexibility into the chronic phase where every joint in my body, from my spine to my hips to my fingers, uh, can dislocate, dislocate randomly, and the joints never heal. Um, On top of that, I stayed in a violent relationship for over a decade um, before I was able to leave, and I suffered 67 broken bones in that 10-year period. That's uh that that just shakes you. What what what's your level of pain without the opioids? I can't walk. I I I'm essentially useless. I just I'm unable to ambulate. 
if I'm able to get around it, I have to drag my lower body around the house because my spine is uh, that painful. It won't hold my legs up. Um, and I just sit around and cry. I mean, I am not able to uh, be useful to anybody, at least of all my children. Now, your doctors have supported prescribing your opioid medication until the, you tell me, until the College of Physicians and Surgeons finds out which doctor is prescribing opioids to relieve your pain, and then what happens? And then they will call and contact my doctor and essentially threaten them uh, into saying that I need to be reduced because the dose that I'm on is unsafe and it's not good for me, and uh, they don't stop. Um, my current doctor, he had one phone call with them, said, I'm happy with the medical evidence that I have. I'm going to continue prescribing uh, because not only did he have evidence from my specialist, he has my previous medical files. And on top of that, he spoke with the chronic pain center that I've been very involved with in, and, you know, taking all the steps necessary there too to non-pharmaceutically relieve my pain. Um, they weren't happy with that. So a, the head of the uh, chronic pain physicians from the Alberta College is actually out of the country right now. She took time from her vacation to call my doctor and impress upon him the necessity for me to taper. You're kidding. No. She's calling from out of the country now. To tell your doctor to taper you from the medication that's allowing you to live how? How does your life improve when you, do, when you use the medication? I'm able to take my kids on short walks. I'm able to cook. I'm able to clean. I'm able to, you know, I, I get about an hour every morning where I'm in quite extreme pain and it takes a while because I take time release medication to be the most responsible I can be. Um, so about an hour every morning, I cheer up for a bit. I'm not able to get around very well. And then after that, because I'm on time release medication, I can be a good mother to my children and a good wife to my husband for the rest of the day. What is your, your fear going forward without the, the opioids that the College of Physicians and Surgeons, you tell me, are they're harassing your doctors and stopping them from prescribing them for you? What's your fear? My fear is, is that I'm going to end up in a place where I'm going to have to make some very hard choices. Um, I do remember what life is like without pain medication, and it scares the life out of me. Um, I, I don't want my children to see me like that. I don't want my husband to see me like that, and I don't want to live like that. So at that point, I would have to make choices on whether I, I want to continue living, which is really scary with a 10 and 13 year old. I wanted people to hear you because all they hear is the other message that they want to save you from the medication that allows you to live a life. I'm not going to stop. I will continue to talk to you, Rachel, and other pain patients because the your side of the story has to be heard and understood by Canadians so that we can collectively tell them to stop this torture. Waterboarding is torture. What's happening to you is also torture. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, and I'd like to point out, too, that they're going after patients like me that have been 100% responsible with their medication. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. You, you know, I've never done anything to indicate that I have a substance. Okay, my dear, I've got to run. I've got to run. But we'll be back in touch, okay? Yeah. All right, thank you. Thank you. Rachel in Alberta. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. The uh, province of Ontario is getting closer to the March 10th date when the Provincial Progressive Conservative Party will vote to select its new leader and, according to polling, the next likely premier of the province. And uh, just announced the party will hold two new writing nomination votes because of alleged voting irregularities that took place earlier Doug Ford is in favor of that, and uh, he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Boy, I hate it when the mouse doesn't want to work and I have to go and I try to click on Doug Ford and won't go there. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great, Roy. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. What does your polling suggest? Uh, how are you doing on the as here with your polling? Well, we have the window our back, and uh, we're getting, getting real positive responses absolutely uh, everywhere we go. So um, I'm excited. Uh, we've been traveling around Ontario. We're going to continue travel, traveling around Ontario, and everywhere we go, uh, it's just nothing but positive. You need people to buy memberships in the party, though. That, that's correct. That's the most important, Roy, that we have to inform the, the public. Everyone runs up to me and says, Doug, we're supporting you. We're going to vote for you. And uh, I always thank them for their, their vote, but... Uh, they, they don't realize that you have to buy a membership. And you can buy a membership for $10 at FordForLeader.com. That's FordForLeader.com. Go on the website, click the icon, and it will uh, send you over to the, the uh, party website and fill out the form. That will make you eligible to vote in the upcoming uh, nomination that's uh, taking place, leadership nomination. Doug, let me talk to you about a few issues that matter to people, and I know you've talked about them, but uh, let's 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 nail down a couple here. You were the first out of the gate to say there'd be no carbon tax in a Doug Ford-led province of Ontario. What about the Ontario-Quebec-California cap-and-trade scheme? What happens to that? Well, that, that's one thing I, I'm going to sit down with the entire caucus. I, I don't believe in making decisions by, myself, Roy. I want to listen to the, the whole team. I want to sit down with the energy experts. And uh, I, I call it cap and, and tax, not cap and trade. Yeah, because that's a carbon tax. Yeah, I call it the cap and tax. It's just all we want to do is tax us to death. Uh, it hurts the, the people of Ontario. It hurts businesses. And we're trying to compete on a worldwide market. And the federal government Prime Minister Trudeau is just punishing us. It just makes it harder and harder. People, boy, people are sick and tired of being gouged by the government. No matter if it's Trudeau, Wynn, uh, municipal governments around the province, every time they stick their hand in their pocket, they have the government in their pocket. That's not going to happen. We're going to start respecting the taxpayers and putting money back in their pocket instead of the government. So no carbon tax. And you said, you said just watch me. And, and I like that. I mean, it sounds good, Doug, but the reality is the son of the man who originally said, just watch me, may say the same thing to you. And the federal government can pass tax laws or initiatives, and the provinces are on the hook, are they not? Well, it looks like we'll be going to the Supreme Court and let them decide. Mm-hmm. Again, it hurts businesses. Well, I was talking to the, 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 some farmers out in Leamington, for example. Well, that's just one example. Examples all over the province. You know, this is, this is killing them. How do they expect to compete? And they ship products 
all over North America, especially down south. And uh, how can they compete? How can they compete against uh, a country that doesn't have any carbon tax? Uh, states like California that, that grow vegetables or, or Florida and so on and so forth. We're going to make this province the most prosperous province. We're going to bring in new economic uh, policies that are going to benefit all Ontarians. And, it, and we're going to do uh, platforms that, that things that actually matter to Ontario residents. Yeah, I know what you mean when you say no carbon tax in the United States, but the state of California does have its own carbon tax, and that's the scheme it's involved in, well, part of one of them, with Quebec and Ontario in the cap and trade. But uh, Mr. Trump has said there'll be no national carbon tax. Some of the states and some of the mayors have said they'll have their own, but I guess they'll fight that out. Mm-hmm. But California, Australia in 2014 did away with its carbon tax, and they'd had it for two years, and the Australian government said it was it was harming People, families, and business. And that really and is... Yeah. I say the exact same. And I don't know why this Prime Minister wants to punish the people of uh, not only Canada, but uh, all, all the other provinces. And someone has to be a principal leader and stand up and be their voice. Because right now, they don't have a voice under Kathleen Wynne. We have another issue. Talk about Kathleen Wynne. And that's the electricity situation in this province. It is cheap to produce... It's being sold at a discount, which is ridiculous. Taxpayers are massively in debt, including, Doug, those who aren't born yet because of uh, the Wynn government's policies. You can't just get rid of the tax, or at least the, the debt, uh, but how do you mitigate against, against this massive debt that's been incurred, according to the Auditor General? Well, you, you know something? We have to review every single ministry. And you know what bothers me about... Uh, you know, the, the hydro bills, you know, people open up their billboy and, and uh, a lot of people, not just seniors, but a lot of seniors, they, they have a choice between heating and eating. We need to review it from, from top to bottom. And keep in mind, remember, Roy, that this was a big sole source deal. You know, this is a sole source deal. And a lot of other people are getting rich off it compared to, compared to the average folks. Like the Green Energy Act. You know who's making the money, Roy? It's Bay Street. They're making hundreds of millions of dollars. But the average people, they're getting hurt. They're getting hurt tremendously. What do you do about the minimum wage? And you know that there's been a, a, a massive number. Um, so 39 or 59,000 part-time jobs were lost in Ontario uh, since that mm-hmm. minimum wage has has begun or has been, been put in place on the 1st of January, the $14. What do you do about that? Because it's scheduled to go to $15 by uh, on next next January the 1st. Well, it's, it's not going to go to $15 under my watch, and I'm not going to hurt the, the frontline workers because my heart breaks for people making uh, $12, $13, $14 an hour. But the only people uh, that are making money on it is the government. You know, someone that's going from 12 up to $14, they're paying 30% uh, more tax. And the walking away is about fifty dollars more in their pocket, and uh, in my opinion, there should be zero percent tax for people at that wage. Why well, I, I don't disagree. So your your sense is that your campaign is going well. You're hearing very positive things, um, but you need people to buy the memberships. That's right. That's absolutely critical, and uh, we have to get that message out everywhere, Roy. That. Uh, you know, people have to get out there, they want their voice heard, they have to buy a membership. And we can make a change together in this province. Well, Doug, thank you so much for the time. All it ever takes for me is to make one phone call or, 
or send an email request, and you're always the first one to say, yes, I'll do it. And, and that's greatly appreciated because well, when you talk to us, you talk to the people. Well, I appreciate you voicing your opinion every single week, Roy, because uh, you're a real be- breed in, in media, uh, and you do a great job. So keep voicing your opinion for the people. All right, Doug, I, I will. I appreciate all the work you do. I will. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Roy. Doug Ford, uh, running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Ontario, the Progressive Ontario Conservative Party of Ontario. I really think they need to drop the word progressive. You're conservative, you're not. It's confusing to people. Progressive is generally a label that liberals and New Democrats grab. Anyway, it is the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Doug Ford is running for the leadership. Yesterday, we spoke with Christine Elliott the former MPP, and uh, also running for the leadership. And next Saturday, Carolyn Mulrooney is going to be joining us. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.